Well, it's great to have Sam Aubrey coming to speak to us. And the uh, Living Out website, I don't know if you've used it, but I find I go to it all the time when discussing human sexuality with Christian and non-Christian. It's a game changer. So, Sam, thank you for inspiring that with others. Sam's a member of General Synod. He's author of Is God Anti-Gay? That's sold over 100,000 copies, although he tells me that his mother has bought 90,000 of them. (laughs) And they are in a basement in Taunton. Anyway, he works for the Gospel Coalition and the Zacharias Trust. And uh, um, uh, uh, Sam, just... We're just so grateful for the impact you're making and the help you're giving us with the gospel. Let me pray as Sam comes. Father, thank you so much for Sam. Thank you very much for the leadership he's giving. We pray that you'd help us now so that we can better care for the flock and we can hold out the gospel to those outside. So please be with our brother now and please help us to have clear minds to learn for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, We're on page 56, if you're following in the handout. That will give you a a summary of what we're looking at in these next few minutes. Um, We're thinking about proclaiming Christ in a sexualized age. Um, All of us will be aware of the age in which we live and the ways in which it has become sexualized. Uh, I'm sure all of us will have someone in our close orbits who either self-identifies as LGBT or as same-sex attracted. Uh, There may be members of our churches. There may be relatives of members of our churches. It's hard to remain removed from this issue. Um, It's been part of my own uh, journey as a Christian, struggling with with homosexual temptation my whole adult life. It's been part of my ministry in in pastoral work uh, in my own church. And increasingly now, um, having opportunities to engage this issue evangelistically, which is a little frightening from time to time. But there is a harvest. Uh, There is a harvest to be had among the LGBT community. So we mustn't duck this issue, tempting though it is, Um, If we're not teaching on this, it won't be that our our people and our churches are untaught. It will be that they are going to be taught by our culture. Every time we open a book or watch the next mini-series or go online, we are being discipled by our world on how to think about human sexuality. So we mustn't duck this issue, but nor must we fear it. It's tempting for some of us to think, when we think of the LGBT community, We think, well, the gospel won't work there. But again, my friends, there is a harvest to be had. If I can put it this way, I don't want us merely to think in terms of holding the line on this issue. I want us to think in terms of gaining ground for Christ. Uh, Many of the LGBT neighbours, colleagues and friends in our community know that they're lost They just don't know what that means or where to go. So you'll see from the sheet a few pointers for us just to think about very briefly. The first thing we need to do is understand uh, the cultural challenges. In my experience, there are are three main objections I regularly encounter uh, to our view of human sexuality as Christians. Uh, The first is that we're unfair. Uh, We treat different groups of people differently. We're we're perceived as being unjust. 
The second is that we're unloving. Uh, We are accused of, of shutting down the possibility of intimacy for certain types of people. Which then leads to the third, which is actually the most common accusation I hear, that we're harmful. But we're actually dangerous. Uh, We used to be seen as as quaint and old-fashioned. Now we're seen as dangerous. Don't you miss being seen as quaint and old-fashioned? Those were the good old days. So the the social commentator and and gay rights activist Dan Savage uh, wrote these words a few years ago. He says, The dehumanizing bigotries that fall from the lips of faithful Christians give your straight children a license to verbally abuse, humiliate, and condemn the gay children they encounter at school. And they fill your gay children with suicidal despair. I think I hear that more than anything else these days. You are killing young LGBT people just by believing what you believe. Uh, We need to understand where our cultural shift has come from. Why does people now think this way? Uh, In part, and I'm uh, stealing a little bit from my colleague Ed Shaw on this, in part we are driven by what we regret. We now look back with shame as a culture on how we've treated sexual minorities in the past. Uh, A movie like The Imitation Game reminds us of how we treated a man like Alan Turing. Uh, We look at our... Uh, lack of response to the AIDS epidemic. And so for most people today, the the easy feeling is that the LGBT community have been through enough. And we look back with regret on how we've responded as a society. Um, Also significant as a change is is how we determine what is good. Uh, If you've not read Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, it's, it's really helpful on this. Uh, There are particular factors that now shape our moral thinking, and those factors have shifted in the last 10 or 15 years. The way we determine whether something is morally right or wrong has changed. Uh, We may have thought in a previous generation that something is wrong because that's how we've always thought. That's what our community has always said and believed. That's how our authority structures recognize things. But today we tend to think of of right and wrong as being bound up with, is is it doing anyone any harm? Is it freeing or is it constraining? Is it, does it feel fair? And so when it comes to issues of sexuality, I think the key factors now for most people are, well, is it, is it harming anyone? Uh, How can we deny someone a human right to love? How can it be fair for for one person to be married, but not another? Um, If you want more on that that cultural shift and how to understand where it's come from, Glyn Harrison's book, A Better Story, is absolutely outstanding. It is so, so helpful. Um, I think some of us have got these red cards on our seats. The um, uh, Evangelism Conference has Glyn speaking, so do make a beeline for that. If you don't like reading, go to the conference uh, or go to both. So if that is the case, how do we respond? Well, a a few things, uh, just to give us a a, a preliminary steer. Uh, The first thing is we need to, these are in no particular order, we need to explain the positives behind the negatives. 
Uh, whenever we encounter a prohibition in the Bible, a very good question to ask is, what good thing does this prohibition protect? So when the, the commandment says, do not lie, it is because truth is so beautiful and truth is so life-giving and healthy. Truth is good for us. And my fear is that for many of us, we, we don't get further than the prohibitions. We don't get further than the thou shalt nots, which gives people the impression Christianity is merely a series of negations. It's a list of things you can't do. And we sound like the preaching equivalents sometimes of the character from uh, Little Britain who's always saying, computer says no. Someone comes up to us with a... With a a desire to go into an illicit relationship, and sometimes all we're heard to say is, Bible says no. But those biblical prohibitions are embedded within a, a narrative that, that provides a rationale for them, that shows us something good about them. Um, a good friend of mine has a, a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter called Hannah, who is generally lovely and occasionally horrific. Um, at meal times, I, I, if you've got two-year-olds, I guess you're familiar with this, but I occasionally refer to her as Kil, Kim Il Hannah, because she <laughs> bears passing resemblance occasionally to, to dictators. Uh, meal times are the real flashpoint. I was around there once, and um, my friend said, don't worry, it's going to be fine this evening, because last week she told us spaghetti is her favourite. And so because you're coming around... We're going to make spaghetti, so it's going to be fine. <laughs> spaghetti was, was presented and, and offered Her Majesty, and a new edict was issued in the land that spaghetti was now not acceptable, and that the plate was thrust across the table and landed on the floor. It's one of those moments as a single person, you think, yeah, there, are, there is a certain upside to being single sometimes. <laughs> But the trouble is, so many people think that's what God is like. God just arbitrarily decides on a given day, I've decided I don't like this. And it's why so many struggle with our biblical sexual ethics. We need to show the, the wider biblical vision for human flourishing. Uh, we need to show the positives behind the negatives. God's purpose for sex and what it means of of how it is a way to, to give yourself to someone completely and exclusively and permanently, of why it makes sense within the covenant of marriage, of what marriage itself means and points forward to, that God has given us this picture of Christ and his church, that the union of the man and the woman, picturing the eventual union of heaven and earth in Jesus that wider biblical narrative makes sense of the prohibitions. So now if I'm, I'm talking about this issue to a, to a non-Christian, I'm a man of, of modest ambitions. To be honest, if they say to me, well, I still don't agree with you, but that kind of does now make sense why you think that, I'm happy with that. They now know it's not just random. And of course, the thing I'm ultimately longing for is that they can say one day with the people of God and with King David in Psalm 19 that the commands of the Lord are radiant. 
Because when we see them in that wider context, they are. They're not always easy. They're occasionally infuriating. But they're always good. And we know that the commands of the Lord are radiant because the Lord is radiant. And we taste his goodness as we live by his word. Uh, Next, we need to answer narrative with narrative. Um, The power of revisionist books like Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian doesn't lie in their exegetical or theological insights, of which there are very few in these books. It lies in their emotional narrative. Uh, When Matthew Vine's published his book, uh, what was it, two or three years ago, I think within about ten minutes... um, folks at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky had amazingly turned around a a volume refuting it. Very well-intentioned, but I think almost entirely missing the point. Uh, When Matthew Vines gives you an emotional narrative that makes you feel the pain of LGBT people... Responding with seven bullet points about which passages he's got wrong actually doesn't do it. No, we need to show that because we're people of good news, that the church has better stories. And so when we hear that often repeated narrative from the world around us of someone saying, well, I I discovered who I really was, and I I learned to embrace that and, and take pride in that and celebrate that and live that out and and now I am flourishing, we can say, well, actually, no, there is a better story to tell. Like the one we heard on that video. Uh, one of the things we're trying to do at Living Out is to, is to collect Christian narratives on this issue. Uh, if you know of people who are in a position where they can publicly share their story, do let us know. Uh, for many people in our culture, those stories are our currency, We need to answer narrative with narrative. Um, Next, we need to show how the gospel treats us all the same. Let me tell you about a guy I met a few months ago called Alex. He came up to me at the end of a a talk I was giving. I was on on, um, the campus of a very secular university in Canada and ended up doing a talk um, uh, to their LGBT advocacy group, which, by the way, was far more welcoming than General Synod. And I'm not joking. Um, Alex came up to me after the talk and said, "Um, I'm not a Christian, I'm gay, I run the LGBT group in another college. And he said, I've I've read your book twice. And I thought, poor soul, I haven't, even I haven't read it twice. (laughs) And he said, I'm I'm now actually attending church. I, I meet with the pastor once a week. We're going through Mark's gospel. And I've joined a small group. And I was thinking, you're a non-Christian gay student who's doing more church stuff than most people at our church. So I said, what is, what is drawing you to Christian things? And he said, well, I, I've realized that, that Jesus treats me the same as everybody else. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, my role in the LGBT community is... He said, this, is, this is his experience of the gay community. He said... The way we see ourselves is we're different and we're special. 
You celebrate us. We have the parade. You turn up. And he said the particular group he was involved with, he said, you know, when gay pride comes up, it's all about which companies can we guilt into giving us the most stuff because we're different and we're special. And when he came across the message of Jesus, he realized for the first time in his life he's not different. That the gospel Jesus has for him is the same that Jesus has for everyone. And this this young lad who's in this society that cherishes equality so highly realized that there is an equality with Christ you don't get in the secular world. And so he is now, I think, very close to the kingdom. Um, I had done a Q&A at this particular event and that the last question had been from a lesbian couple who said, why can't you treat us the same? And this lad, Alex, told me how angry he was with that question because he was saying, well, do you want to be treated the same or not? Which way is it going to be? And that conversation has had a a profound effect on me. It's... um, It's given me a new kind of approach, particularly evangelistically. You can try this on for size and see how you get on with it. But this is is now what I try to do if I'm engaging with someone for the first time who's not a believer on this issue. Here's what I do. I don't say to someone what I can't say to everyone. So just as an example, I was speaking somewhere recently. um, A lesbian came up to me afterwards and said, I'm a lesbian. What do you think about that? Okay. Um, And my my initial response was, okay, I'm not going to say to her what I can't say to everyone. So I said to her, that's great to meet you. Jesus, Jesus has some really challenging things to say about sexuality to all of us. Did you know that? And she said, oh, what, what, what does he say? And I said, well, Jesus says we're all a bit broken in our sexuality. We're all a bit kind of disordered and and skewed. And as I went on, it it amazed me how far in the conversation I could go before I had to say anything specific about lesbianism or her. And I think that's a good approach because the assumption so many people have is that we treat people differently. And so I want my starting point to be, no, actually, Jesus puts us all in the same boat. We are all sexually fallen. We are all disordered in our sexual desires. <clears throat> uh, if I can put it this way, there is no one who is straight. All of us are skewed. Um, having been involved in, in pastoral ministry for a number of years and, and being a nosy friend anyway, I've not met a heterosexual person who's not pretty messed up in their desires. Actually, Jesus levels the playing field. We are all fallen in our sexuality. I find that a useful starting point. Don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. That also helps pastorally, by the way. It's my way of trying to show someone I don't think they're a freak. Uh, You can't say that to someone because the moment you say to someone, hey, I don't think you're a freak... You're suggesting reasons why you might have done. <laughs> and so for, for any folks in the LGBT community, my, my new MO is, well, actually, I'm going gonna, 
As far as I can, I'm only going to say to them things that are true of everyone. Show them how the gospel treats us all the same. Uh, Next, we need to encourage healthy intimacy. If you can grab your Bibles again and just turn to Mark uh, chapter 10 very quickly. Just a couple of verses here to help us. Uh, Mark chapter 10. Um, In our culture, I think we have so conflated sex and intimacy together that we cannot imagine one existing without the other. Uh, We don't really believe today that such a thing as intimacy can exist unless it's fundamentally driven by sex. And so when we hear previous generations speak about deep friendship, we kind of roll our 21st century eyes and say, oh, well, they obviously must have been gay. But the Bible shows us that you can have a lot of sex and no intimacy. And we see that. And similarly, you can have a lot of intimacy and not be having sex. Jesus Christ experienced intimacy. Paul experienced intimacy, yet both were single. Uh, We can live without sex, that's actually fine. But we're not designed to live without intimacy, and so we must make sure that in our churches we are encouraging and facilitating healthy intimacy. Being theologically sound on this issue is necessary, but on its own it's not sufficient. So Mark chapter 10, we've just had that the rich young man who's uh, gone away from his encounter with Jesus somewhat disappointed. So Peter, ever the sensitive, delicate soul, jumps in in verse 28 and points out how fantastic he and the others are at discipleship. He says, uh, see, we've left everything and followed you. And then Jesus makes this remarkable promise to Peter. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Uh, Jesus just assumes people will leave things to follow him. That is basic discipleship. Jesus is not a good salesman. But he's honest. I love that. Nothing's buried in the small print. People will leave things to follow him. Moreover, the most costly things to leave, Jesus assumes, will be relational and familial. Uh, There are those for whom serious discipleship will sadly involve leaving their entire kin. Uh, The apologetics ministry I work for has just lost a a dear friend and colleague called Nabil Qureshi uh, came to Christ from a Muslim background and has gone through the agony of being cut off by parts of his family and now facing this awful situation of how to arrange a funeral that parts of his family don't want to be involved with. But notice Jesus' response to that reality isn't to say, yes, some people are going to lose 
mother and father and, and children and lands, and it just sucks. But wait for the new creation, and then it will be worth it. No, Jesus says, even in this life, even with enormous relational cost, it is always worth it following him. And so, my my friends, if you think the gospel is a bad deal for any type of person, you are calling Jesus Christ a liar. If I can put it this way, this is... This is the real prosperity gospel. He's not talking about money. He talks about houses, but even there, he's not promising you a a lovely property portfolio. He's, He's talking about family. Whatever we leave behind for Jesus, he says he will replace in godly kind and far, far greater measure. And the challenge for us is that we are the brothers and sisters and the mothers and fathers and sons and daughters that Jesus is promising. So let me run this thought experiment by you. Just imagine someone is converted at your church from the gay community and they start coming to your church. They have now to to cut themselves off from certain forms of intimacy. Perhaps they're, they're pushed out of their gay community They are in your church, and according to Mark 10, that person should be able to say that as a result of following Christ in your church, they should be able to say, I now have more family in my life and not less. I now have more community in my life and not less, more intimacy in my life and not less. And as we think about our own fellowships, the question is, would they say that? Are we encouraging healthy intimacy? I was uh, talking with a progressive pastor recently who said to me that by not letting gay people go into romantic relationships, this person said to me, you are making people live a life without love. I hear that a lot. I'm not normally this bolshy, and I hate conflict. But the spirit of Will Stallman came upon me, and I said to this person, I said, if you have to be romantically fulfilled to experience love in your church, then your church stinks. I mean, for crying out loud. No, we must encourage healthy intimacy. And then finally, we must keep pointing people to Jesus. Uh, Whenever I teach on this issue, as far as I can, I teach the Christian sexual ethic from the lips of Jesus. Not because I think the rest of the Bible is any less authoritative, but because I want to show people, actually, your issue is with him. If you're going to think about Jesus, you have to reckon with what he says about sex and marriage. And I'm also trying to show people that even if we didn't have Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and those other passages in the Bible, we would still know what to think about this issue. Uh, The Bible doesn't give us a theology of homosexuality. It gives us a theology of marriage. 
And this is one of the outworkings of that theology of marriage, and we see it from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 19. I want to blow away the myth that Jesus was somehow just neutral when it came to sexual ethics. But I also want to show people that actually that the kind of decisions that people in my situation have made will only ultimately make sense when you understand who Jesus is. Uh, one person said of me uh, a few months ago, he said, you're, you're a bit like a unicorn. I mean, I, I'd heard of people like you, I just never thought I'd met, meet one. I've been called worse, so that was, that was pretty good going. <laughs> but sometimes that the only thing I can say to, to non-Christians on this issue is, in your eyes, my decision to follow Jesus and not fulfill my sexuality looks madness. But when you know who Jesus is, it's a no-brainer. Um, I saw this um, motto on someone's wall uh, recently, and I'll, I'll finish with this. Uh, it said, those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. It's true. If you watch a music video and mute it, it looks really stupid. You've got a lot of people strutting and pouting. You put the volume back up, and it kind of starts to make sense. Not always entirely, but at least a little bit. Jesus Christ is the music. Who he is and, and what he's done for us are what we dance to. This Jesus knows me better than I know myself. This Jesus loves me more than I love myself. And this Jesus is more committed to my ultimate joy than I am. And so it's a no-brainer to go with him in this area of life. And I hope that's the case for all of us, that our lives don't ultimately make sense unless Jesus is who he says he is. Um, let me just end by pointing you to those uh, resources. Uh, two of my favourite books on the planet are those books by Glyn Harrison and Ed Shaw. They, are, they speak so much more widely than just to this issue. And I recommend them very highly. Uh, one of the things we're doing at Living Out is running a series of regional uh, training days for, for people in Christian ministry, trying to think through how we deal with this issue exegetically, pastorally, evangelistically. Uh, have a look on the website. We've got a day coming up in Bristol next week, another in Derby, I think in early December. Come and have a word for, for more. Um, I'm going to close in prayer and hand over to Brian. Father, we thank you that the gospel is good news for everyone. Uh, we thank you that as we see LGBT uh, friends and neighbours and colleagues in our community, we, we have good news for them. So please help us to be clear in our thinking, help us to be persuasive in what we say, and help our churches to be compelling in the kind of relationships we foster there. 
And our Father, we pray for a wonderful harvest. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.